When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga, and thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Hue Virtual Chat. I'm Tracy Koga, and uh, we're going to celebrate the month of June as Pride Month. And we're going to have some very special guests, and also going to talk about the tragedy that happened in London, Ontario. It's just, well, unspeakable. But, anyways, let's open the doors and start our Hue Virtual Chat. Hello, everybody. Hi, Tina. Hi, Uzoma. So good to see you. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, Robin. Hello, Albert. Everybody, you can unmute your mics if you want. Well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to be colorful and positive. It is Pride Month, and, you know, I really wanted to talk about all of the good things that are happening around in the world. And um, I know that, again, we have heavy hearts. Uh, all of our thoughts and prayers go out to the family, the Muslim community, the terrible tragedy that happened in London, Ontario. I, it, it, it boggles my mind, boggles my mind. But anyways, uh, I really want to start first with my dear friend Tina. Um, Tina, <laughs> and again, uh, I just want to say too, May was Asian Heritage Month and I saw and watched a few programs and the theme, the common theme, number one, I really appreciated the young people being involved, but the common theme was talking about anti-Asian racism and identity. And I, I, I'm second generation, but uh, yeah, I grew up in a different time, I guess. So. I wanted to start with you because you do have to leave for another meeting, and we're all in Zoom world, um, but uh, for people to join in a national forum, which I think is fantastic. So share a little bit about that. Yeah, thank you so much for having Tracy. And I am like, I'm always sad that I have to leave these meetings early to go to other <laughs> meetings I have on Tuesdays. But when I see who's here today, I am like particularly just like so sad that I can't stay for the whole meeting. Um, you know, I look around, I'm like, wow, all these fantastic people out here, you know, some of my favorite people. So I'm really sad that I'll have to leave early. Um, yeah, but I think, as you said, Asian Heritage Month, I felt was just very different in the nature of conversations this year, you know, mm -hmm. instead of, uh, you know, usually it focuses a lot on celebration and culture and just sharing community um, and all the community groups um, across, you know, the different Asian ethnocultural organizations all felt the need to come together and really um, foreground anti-Asian racism. 
um, and try and engage with it. And I think certainly, um, you know, yesterday's events in London, Ontario, just reinforce the way that you know, media representations and then actions follow on those and how this seems to be a repeating pattern. Um, and so I'm really, you know, I'm not sure excited isn't the right word, but I think I'm really sort of, you know, see this as a positive step. UBC um, moved forward and I think it's only been a few months. They've um, put a huge amount of effort into um, bringing together a two-day virtual national forum that's going to be um, June 10th and 11th. And it is really quite a phenomenal undertaking. And I think it's as people across the country in different positions came together. Um, but really what they're trying to do is to create a, a foundation for a national conversation um, and really to think about where we are now with anti-Asian racism, both historically, the past, and what, it, what we need to do in the future. So it's bringing together um, a large number of community organizers, scholars, public intellectuals, um, some figures from the government, healthcare, media, journalism, the corporate world, and really trying to create tables where we have a common conversation, but also um, where sectors get to talk and think. And so um, the events will highlight as well, breaking out into groups, really thinking about what needs to happen. And I think the focus is what are the key issues? What are the impacts? And what steps do we need to um, think we need to take. So really trying to focus on how can we begin to identify together next steps. Um, obviously, we're not going to solve anything over two days, but it is open to everyone. And I will put in the chat where people can look for registration in the program. Um, and I just to go with your opening comments, Tracy, they released, and I believe it just came out today. I'm not sure where it'll appear first in the media, but they first launched a survey with Angus Reid as well on the impacts and understanding of anti-Asian racism. And the initial findings out of that first survey, um, it's the first of three that will come out in association with this forum, showed that within the Asian community, the kind of those who are hardest hit by anti-Asian racism are the younger generations. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this, you know, I haven't had a chance to fully digest, you know, the survey, but I suspect this is exactly what we would anticipate. Those who are working out in the front lines more often have greater contact um, and lower mm -hmm. socioeconomic groups. So um, the patterns are, you know, continue to be troubling in those ways. Um, but, you know, I think there's going to be a lot that will come out of this national forum and really to see it as a foundation of what to do next. So how do we really create and understand what's happening across the country rather than in our pockets where I know um, Manitobans have been really active in the conversations, but we definitely want to engage across the country. So um, that's what I have to share. And I'll put in the chat where people can find that information as well. But I'm always thankful. And now I'll I'll stop chatting and then I'll get to hear what others have to say today as well. Well, I am. Oh, no, and, and still, I want to uh, keep on that conversation, Tina, because we've had so many, even if we look at these few virtual chats, we've had so many great ideas, so many different thoughts, so many chances or desires to make change. I'm going to get Uzoma in the conversation now. We sometimes come to a standpoint, Uzoma, what are the next steps? Here we have a national forum, and I know that there's going to be creative and, and incredible uh, ideas put across. What are the next steps to have a voice, to make a difference or make the momentum or keep the momentum going? I really appreciate that question. I also really appreciate being able to uh, share space with everyone today. It's great to see familiar faces, people that I know are doing a, a tremendous amount of really important and good work in all of our communities. 
And, you know, when I think about how do we move forward and, and how do we, you know, see some changes happen that really need to happen, there's a couple of things that come to mind for me. One thing that really comes to mind is that the folks who are most impacted by the issues of the now and of the yesterday and of the tomorrow, it's those folks who have to lead the way, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not acceptable. It's not good enough. It's actually not effective at this. And we know this for people who don't have those lived experiences, who aren't impacted by systemic discrimination, by misogyny, by uh, transphobia, queer phobia, it's not good enough for those folks to be under-resourced, uh, to be consulted as an afterthought, and to not be leading the way in the decisions that are being made to affect change. And so I think one of the big things that we must see are those folks who are in positions of power, those folks who have uh, a ton of resource, those folks who call themselves allies in wanting to move forward in a, in a productive way, in an equitable way. Those folks need to step aside and step back and they need to support the folks who need to lead. And that's not a comfortable space for a lot of people to be in. That is not a comfortable space to say, you know what, I, I'm gonna, and I, I say that too as a healthcare provider, right? As somebody who worked in healthcare a long time and recognizing that although I may be the provider in the room or the expert on certain things in terms of health, you know, the folks who are, who are accessing care are the ones who should be the experts on what kind of care they need. And, and sometimes we have to recognize power roles and who has what resource. And we have to step back and we have to be able to listen and support and amplify and allow those folks who most need that change to lead. And again, it's not easy. It's not comfortable for a lot of people, but we know definitively, we know that what has been done hasn't been working the way it needs to for those folks who are greatly impacted. And the thing that I keep hearing and the thing that I keep seeing and living is that when folks who are most impacted take the lead and are supported and resourced and have the space to do so, change happens. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, case in point, that when you're talking about that, Uzoma, uh, one of the shows we were talking about vaccinations, and we were also talking about uh, the communities that are, are vulnerable, especially Point Douglas, and we had guest on, and she said, if you take a look at some of the local communities, how they are at the forefront and getting their own people in their community vaccinated or encouraging them, they are the ones that we should be looking at. And uh, yes, so Tina, let's hope this, this forum starts a movement but I know that if they have leaders like yourself, please, uh, we invite you back. And if there's a plan, we will help and we will make it happen because it really needs to end. It really does for everybody. But on that note, we're going to be talking about pride. Hello, Rana. Nice to see you. Hello. Our hearts and uh, prayers. Well, we were talking a little bit about that. Maybe, yeah. You know, it's, while it's fresh and everything like that, your comments on the <laughs> tragedy is not the word. I don't know. No, I think it's kind of beyond a tragedy. You have like a, you know, it's, there's just so many layers to this. Um, 
you know, it's, you know, and I, and I don't know, you know, I think a lot of us are just processing um, what this actually means. But, um, you know, Alberta has had uh, numerous, numerous attacks on young Muslim women, numerous on buses being chased down, um, you know, just locally, you know, people, there's always these little conversations uh, about being something being said to somebody like there's, there's just a lot. And, and I think that um, I think that for us as a community, simply because I think that, you know, we're, it's, it's a it's a pretty diverse community within itself. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're quite diverse within ourselves. Um, and I think that I think there we, we have not really brought forward um, the severity of the Islamophobia in Canada. I think that people keep seeing it like the Quebec mocks, the mosque killings. There's been there's been enough at this point uh, where people need to be like, these are real issues. And these issues actually uh, are, are media and, and, and they're created, right? Like they're, they're created, they're, they're, they didn't just appear. Um, and it's been this consistent thing. And I talked to you guys about being in politics and, you know, days before the election, what was going on in my writing? And, you know, like there was letters going out calling me a terrorist. You know, she wants to impose Sharia law, like just BS nonsense passed on to like 20,000 people in a writing. Like this is not something new. And, and I think at this point, uh, because it is so close to home for a lot of people, um, it's very... You know, I saw a lot of friends and families just kind of posting, oh, well, this is just what families do. You know, you'll see a lot of, and if you live in kind of diverse areas, you'll see a lot of Muslim families with their kids walking down this, this is very, it's a very cultural, and I wouldn't say cultural, but it's very normal. Like it's what we do after we eat. Everybody kind of gets out to the road and does their like half an hour walk. So I think that that has been very triggering for a lot of people. Uh, where where we do or we have always felt safe having our parents walk after their meals in the evening like it's very you know so so there's just a lot of different layers to this but uh, you know I don't really have a lot of thoughts as you can probably tell I think that my mind is a bit racing right now um, you know I know that there's uh, the, the, the uh, prime minister is speaking on it right now I believe or he was a little while ago I don't really feel like listening to a lot of that stuff at this point because it's always the same nonsense and I've been in that position I know that you have to say what you have to say but at the end of the day you know like there's there's probably a lot more that has to happen and, and I don't know what that is and I don't know who uh, how everybody comes together right because it's not just this uh, we just found 215 young children. We just have, uh, there's a lot of anti-Semitic racism going on. There's a lot of anti-Asian race going on. There's a lot of attacks, uh, domestic, like there's just a lot going on, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I think we're all feeling that there's a lot of hatred and negativity. And um, I think it's perhaps time for us to really reflect on who we want to be uh, as, a, as a nation, as a country, 
um, you know, is this what we want? And if this is what we want as a community, uh, I would simply say, stay the hell out of other places and don't, you're not peacekeepers anymore. <laughs> you don't get to go anywhere else and, and claim that you're, you know, civilized and you're all these great things. You don't get to do that. So I think it's a crux. I think we need to start just making decisions about who we want to be as a country. Uh, and that takes everybody like forums like this, where we all come together and make decisions, right? Um, because it has to happen because I think these are very pivotal moments, very, very pivotal moments in probably our country's history, not yeah. only our province. So yeah, that's my 10 cents. Oh, we love you. I know it's just hard times. I want to um, say welcome to our Hue virtual chat to Albert McLeod. <laughs> Uh, you know what, Albert was a guest on our Healing Hearts show and I've asked him to come back again today because uh, he is the president of the Two-Spirited People of Manitoba. And Albert, I guess we're going to move on to positive things now, Pride Month. And how has Pride, I guess, progressed and moved forward as opposed to right now where we are? Or has it helped? Have, have we have we embraced everyone? Well, uh, you know, back in 1987 was the first official Winnipeg Pride March. And in those days, it was about 200 people that marched. And uh, we were scared because the legislation that prohibited discrimination had just uh, been sort of approved in our uh, um, legislative. Uh, the month before, the week before. And many of my colleagues, especially Two-Spirit people who were Indigenous, were uncertain of the violence that we might face that day, just marching from Bimmy Ridge Park to Memorial Boulevard. And that's only a few blocks. <laughs> and we were literally coming out, uh, not only to each other, but publicly and socially and to our communities. So being out, and we knew media would be there, but in a, there was about 20 people who actually wore masks. And we're all familiar with COVID with masks, but this was masks over the top of their head to hide their identity because they might be fired. They might lose their job. Uh, they might be rejected by their family. So that was 87. And now, you know, uh, many years later, we have probably the largest Pride event in North America, about 20,000 people. People come from the U.S., people come from other parts of Canada. Uh, it has a two-spirit powwow as part of it. And granted, you know, the last year it was uh, postponed, it was virtual. This year it will be virtual as well. So, so it's been a long process. As well, in terms of legislation, we've had the apology uh, from the Prime Minister to LGBTQ2 Canadians. We've had 76 LGBTQ2 projects funded last year across Canada. One of them is the Two-Spirited People in Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And we've had the recent inclusion of Two-Spirited People in the National Inquiry in the expansion of their mandate around the identity of Indigenous women to include trans women and two-spirit people. So in, in that situation, we do see some movement forward and that there are, were 32 uh, two-spirit specific calls for justice in that inquiry report. And uh, so our work is ongoing. 
our project this year is about local capacity building and understanding that people who have been suppressed and oppressed for generations, it takes time to come out of that. And so capacity building, skills building is required because for many people, it's still not safe, right? You could still be rejected. You could still experience violence. You could still lose your job in 2021, right? So, so we're doing it cautiously. Mm -hmm. Uh, understanding, you know, the climate of Canada and just sort of the violence that we see today. And, and so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, we are celebrating not just June as Pride Month, but because of COVID, it's going to be June, July and August. <laughs> and Pride Week is uh, three weeks in September, the 3rd to the 12th. So we have a lot of activities planned to really engage people, even though it is social distancing to let them experience, uh, you know, some some form of a celebration of their identities. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Albert, you're right. I mean, there has been a lot of movement forward. Maybe if you could just tell us more about two-spirited people and how it relates to the Indigenous culture. Well, I think this refers to some of the early uh, conversation and uh, the idea of colonization and, and certainly for the indigenous people and uh, we've learned with the Kamloops situation with uh, finding the bodies of 215 buried children who were under the care of the state and the church at the time and uh, the you know uh, describing of genocide in the inquiry and the prime minister said it on June 3rd that yes, genocide can happen even in the 21st century, even in a first world country. And we do have it historically documented where quote, very civilized unquote states can uh, commit genocide. We've seen it in the last few generations. So Canada is not immune to that. And I think many, uh, for many Canadians, we, we are still in denial that it can happen you know, in, a, in the 21st century. And so for, um, you know, our, our work is really educating people about that. And that, you know, Canada is not the paradise that it is, you know, set out to be around the world. We are a colonial state. And when you colonize violence, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia are part of that process. And you could see it all over the world, right? And so, so myself, it really is is being objective enough to see where we are in the world, who we are, right? And what we need to do as a civil society. What is our conversations about our morals and our ethics when we see the disparity, when we see the ongoing misogyny in our in our country? So we have to dismantle that. We have to dismantle the colonial aspects that are harmful to us as Canadians. And I think the two-spirit uh, people have, uh, you know, uh, the church and state attempted to erase us for over a hundred years, totally suppressed. So when we had the term, the name two-spirit, it was reclaiming that, right? It was reclaiming our spiritual connection to the natural world, to our spiritual world, the spirituality of our families, and also uh, the spirituality of our nations. And all of that predated colonization. 
So in many ways, uh, we are reclaiming that, uh, that we not only belong to the larger LGBTQ community, we, are, we belong to our own communities and our own families. So that spirituality is, is about that resurgence and that reclamation. Oh. Thanks so much, Albert. We'll come back to you. Um, Uzoma, now Pride Month, it's a big question, but what does that mean for you? That is a big question. That uh, What does Pride Month mean to me? I feel like it, it changes uh, every year. It grows a little bit. It um, evolves a little bit. You know, and I only, uh, my the first time I actually went to Pride wasn't very long ago. Um, I can't remember, I can't remember the year, but uh, it wasn't like I, you know, started going to Pride when I was 18 or 19. It was actually pretty recent for me. And that was because I never really saw Pride as a place that, that I would fit in. You know, everything that I saw of Pride was like white, shirtless, gay men, uh, you know, white, queer women. Um, there wasn't a lot of black representation, African representation. And so when I, when I first went to Pride, for me, it was really kind of like what a lot of, I think, folks experience, just kind of scoping it out. You know, mm -hmm. let's, you know, get our feet on the ground here and see if there's spaces for me. And certainly it's evolved well beyond that now where pride really is, um, it's, it's becoming more so right here in Manitoba, a place and space that people can make it be what it needs to be for them. And I think that's really important that whatever your, your context is for your own identities in your own life and your community, it's important that pride be a space where you can express who you are and you can take up space safely and be welcomed and be connected and feel like you have community. And so for me, pride is really about pushing back against the systems that would try to deny us those opportunities to try and deny us that space. And it is about embracing the, the relationships and the space and the narratives that make us who we are and amplifying that, right? And that's, it's not just about partying and celebrating and joy, it's about deconstructing, learning, unlearning, demanding, protesting, um, you know, it's about all of those things and it's very complex, but at the end of the day, it's beautiful. And I'm, I'm really proud to uh, walk in a community alongside so many people who do so much work to make pride what it needs to be for each and every person in our communities. Yes, and no doubt, again, it'll be a little different being at all virtual. Before, uh, Tina, before you have to leave, maybe your comments uh, on the Asian identity too, because being Asian too, I know that there are things that just aren't talked about, mental health and probably gender and sexuality. So, yes, has there been a forward movement? Well, you know, I think, again, these are ones that are often generational. Um, it's a struggle. And I think, you know, there's so much that I think in the Asian community that we are trying to open spaces mm -hmm. for discussion on precisely these. And certainly um, new community groups emerging that are much more concerned with issues of intersectionality, um, questions of gender identity, sexuality, um, also the different Asian identities um, and and the ways that um, 
you know, oppression happens within Asian communities. So certainly the way that, you know, hierarchies come into play, family expectations. And I think, you know, I'm really happy to see those conversations. And I think many of us are intent is when we get to this national forum to ensure that those are at the forefront. And we are really happy to see, we're try, trying to also do student-based ones. So there is a whole mm. separate, students are integrating to the national forum, forum, but also have their own space for student dialogue. And I think as, you know, much of this goes that, you know, the youth, younger people will tell us what they need. And exactly as Uma said at the forefront, we need to listen to those voices. We need to hear how the communities haven't created the spaces. Um, because I think as we've all been saying, being oppressed in one sphere doesn't necessarily mean that you are not you know, also duplicating or creating systems or even just relationships that aren't as, that don't enable people to express their full identity. So my hope is that all of this will be on the table as we work through them, because, you know, as, as this group says over and over again, you know, whether it's forms, all forms of oppression, if we're not going to understand them um, as an intersectional experience, we've all missed the boat and, you know, we might as well, you know, kind of stop there and just regroup. So, you know, I, you know, that's my hope that these conversations keep getting there and that, we that everyone's holding each other accountable so yeah mm -hmm. and thank you so much and i'm so sorry cynthia rob and linda i don't even get to hear you speak today which will make me very sad but um i know you you'll also it. have a great conversation you can watch it on our website tina i okay. will <laughs> thank you thank everyone you so enjoy the rest of your day bye-bye so on that note um where'd she go cynthia yes Okay, well, you know, you can fill us in on, on your observations of what it is like in England, but, you know, we want to know, too, your personal experience, too, when you were here in Winnipeg, and how do you compare the both, or do they compare? Um, I mean, that's really intriguing, um, because I have intentionally not engaged as much with the community here. Um, I'm just living my life and building my business and trying, you know, to do that, which was something that I felt I couldn't shake in Winnipeg, that there was always this history. I mean, I did live there for 45 years, so it's obvious I would have history. But, yeah, it's, um, it's really intriguing that, you know, when I hear you know, Azuma and Rant and uh, Rana and uh, Albert talk, it, you know, all the things that we've talked about before, you know, the youth are not the leaders of tomorrow. They're leaders today. We need to step out of the way, let them lead. Um, that, you know, communities that are being oppressed, you need to let them lead, step out of the way, right? Um, and again, we've talked about Canada's shame, right? That idea of travel internationally is, like, oh, Canada, like, why would you want to be here? And it's like, well, Canada's not the sparkling gem that you think it is. It's great, but it's not perfect. Um, and so looking at it in a real light. And it was very telling in the story that Albert shared that, you know, a lot of the things that he referred to, you know, happening back in the 80s and so forth, um, they do still happen today. I mean... You know, one that I try and follow and, and so forth is the engagement with, for instance, you know, why are legislators not banning conversion therapy, which many of the LGBT plus community have been um, exposed to. And, and Canada has its own awful history in Toronto, you know, with that. So it's like 
all of these things kind of come together. So when I look at my own story and I kind of look, well, I lost my birth family. You know, I lost my marriage of 32 years and I ended up leaving my career in Winnipeg and needing to create space in order to really find myself and to land at a place where I'm just me and just being able to live. Um, so I would say that it's not that Canada is worse than the UK or the UK. I mean, in fact, for trans people, the UK is one of the worst track records. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I came here is because when I do engage, I mean, this is the home of, uh, you know, some, um, some very well-known authors who shall not be named because um, they don't need uh, more press. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of people that I'm prepared to go up against when we talk about recognizing, you know, as Azuma said, the equity of our rights, right? I mean, this is not a pie, right? This is not, I, I get my equitable share of it and you get none. No, like we all get equitable share of our rights. And that doesn't go away uh, no matter where you're at. And no matter which country I've been in, I see the fight. Um, and it's represented in different ways. South America was represented in one way, Canada, United States, a different way. When I was in Israel last year, it was a different way. And now in the UK, again, we're still kind of coming out of this. And so pride here is not until September. So you don't see a lot right now. And I'm really interested to see because in their support for their healthcare system, the NHS, they use the rainbow and not at the rainbow flag, but a literal rainbow. And it's like, okay, how are they going to deal with that communication of the branding of this support for the healthcare? Can it be somehow turned into support for all the diverse people? And again, remember in my world, I consider women to also be oppressed communities within misogynistic patriarchal systems. So I'm sure that's not the upbeat story you were looking for, but no, no. <laughs> that, that, that is the harsh reality of living as a woman with a transgender history who's queer and panse pansexual. That is the world that I live every day. It doesn't go away. And you just, as I'd like to say, you learn to live like a clock. You find a way mm -hmm. to move forward. Mm -hmm. Well, you certainly have. Wow. Robin... You commented you were surprised that Pride is so new to Winnipeg. So maybe an Australian view. Well, I, I, I had no idea. So, um, God, I haven't really got into the community since I moved here. Truth be told, I got here and went to work on the business and forgot about life. And then COVID hit and it was like, and because last year I was like, oh, I'm going to start connecting with people. And, oh, yeah, that didn't happen the way it was. But, I mean, for me, I, um, I mean, Australia has its issues. I want to be very clear. But I've been going to Mardi Gras in Australia since, uh, you know, I don't know. Like Mardi Gras, if I think about 1987, and Mardi Gras is the, well, it was at the time the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender kind of thing. It was one of the biggest, if not the 
biggest in the world and I remember my first one was maybe 85 and there were 600,000 people like there and there were like I don't know 150 floats and like there was political stuff and there was the celebration and the you know marching boys and marching girls which truth be told I'm awful I'm you know there's some nice eye candy um but you know I'm, I'm not going to say there's not and and it was this I remember when I moved to Sydney and it was like oh I can be out and proud and there was in entire areas of the city that was like quite a significant area in the city that was like we're all just hanging out we're all having a good time there were like massive um parties to raise money like I went it was it was then I don't know what it's called now it was called the rap party it was in September and it was to raise money for Mardi Gras and they would have you know 50,000 people at this party just to to celebrate and raise money for the Mardi Gras parade and it's an entire month of concerts and comedy and like events and so I, I guess when I came here and I went to my first Pride uh, 2019, I was like, oh, like I really was, I was awful. And this, this is no offense, but I was like, oh, it's, it's not, it's not that big. And then I hear like you talk about, like it's only been around that long. So of course it's not that, you know, it, it's, <laughs> big in terms of here but I, I was just I remember talking to Charlotte and going oh wow I wonder how we can you know even increase this more and I'm sorry there was a you know for being such a judgy asshole um <laughs> I and I had a great time with it but it felt such a a little event compared to what I'd been used to and, you know, I've done stuff in New Zealand too and, the, um, you know, the queer community there is, like, very positive and very forward and, you know, um, we're still getting bashed and killed in both of those countries, right? But the, the one thing I think is um, super cool for me, you know, it was only, I don't know, five years, four years ago, that I was like, oh, this is why I haven't fitted into the lesbian community because, you know, there's a guy in here and it doesn't quite fit. And I actually um tried to date someone here a couple of years ago. And they went, I don't want to date you. I want to go, I want to date a girl, not a guy in a girl's body. I was like, oh. And then I thought, actually, I'm really good being me. I'm a hybrid. That's how I describe myself. And... I'm just gonna get involved as me and I, I think that's the piece I'm hearing right now that we can be ourselves and I wanna I wanna do whatever I can to create that environment for everyone, whether it's about 
you know, like this or whatever it's about. Like my life is about saying to people, you can be you and you can be true to you and it's okay. And I will stand with you as we go through this world, right? And there'll be times when we get knocked down and it's the strength in getting back up again um, that I think is super important. So I just gibbered. You know me, Tracy, I just gibber. <laughs> but I feel honoured to be part of this conversation because it hits home and it hits home strongly. And I think when I came to Canada and heard about Two-Spirited, I was like, oh, that really fits. That feels so, like, grounding. Oh, I just got goosebumps. So the ancestors are, are saying, yep, you got it right. So <laughs> uh, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know what? And it's all just about sharing stories, I think, right? And learning from each other. And this is such a great conversation to know that it's just more we love the parade parades bring people together but we do know that it goes much more beyond a parade and it is creating a safe space space and it is allowing Cynthia to have her own personality to run her business as free as any other human being should should be allowed and that leaves me with Linda <laughs> Have have you have you attended a pride parade? Oh, many pride yeah. parades. Uh, you know, it's funny, Rob, listening to you because you know, coming from here, the last uh, two or three that I went to, I'm like, it's so big. There's so <laughs> many people because I remember, you know, years ago going, and it, you know, I, I appreciate Albert you uh, setting that that scene of 1987 and how small and uh, I, I, I wasn't at the first, but I would have been ones in uh, the nineties and, you know, they were tiny. So it's, it's grown exponentially here. So that, that's my experience. Um, and yeah, I went, uh, I, I've been to a lot. I was uh, talking about this with Tracy the other day. I was extremely fortunate to have my mother who was, very, very um, uh, open-minded, progressive thinker, kind of ahead of her time. And she was always uh, LGBTQ positive. And in fact, she married the first gay couple in Winnipeg. She was a Unitarian chaplain. And uh, so she, she was always a, a real leader uh, for all of us. And so I did go uh, to many pride parades. And I also, I, I started to bring my kids because I wanted them to also see the, uh, the celebration, the politics of it, the, um, uh, what it means to, to attend and to be a part of that. So um, I've appreciated this conversation so much because I've heard everyone saying uh, similar things about sharing stories and, you know, letting, letting the people who have experienced oppression and traumas lead the way. And where I come from, you know, my business as a coach and I'm a writer and I'm also a trainer. Oh, hi, Susie. Um, I'm always interested in how that happens 
the actual mechanics of people who have stories to tell and yet who have experienced oppression often have the hardest time getting their own stories out. They're often, um, you know, rightly so scared and don't have the confidence or the support or the uh, resources to get those stories out and to um, uh, move beyond uh, their own fears. That's something that is personally interesting to me. How do, how do we help people tell their stories? Um, and that's something that I do in my work. I, I'm very passionate about helping people speak up, speak even when they're in fear, you know, even when, uh, I can't remember who said it, but speak even when your voice quakes, even when you, um, even when you're feeling that sick pit in your stomach, how do you still come forward with your ideas and present them? And so I find this conversation so, uh, so interesting and so important to have. Um, I, I, I would just like to see more of the youth empowered to use their voices. And uh, so that's something uh, right, Rob, bias for us. So yes, thank you. Thank you for including me in this conversation. It's, it's very important. Oh, wow. So I wanna still following up on personal experience, lived experience. Albert, Uzoma, Robin, Cynthia, one question, and I think I'll probably hopefully get different answers. What was the biggest hurdle that you faced and how did you resolve it or overcome it? Uh, we had a recent situation in Winnipeg where we couldn't pay for our um, security for the route on our main thoroughfare in Winnipeg. So we were relegated to the city by a side street. So I wrote a letter to our mayor and I said, you know, we are citizens of this city. We pay taxes. We have the right to march in the public thoroughfare like any other citizen does every year. Santa Claus gets to go down our main thoroughfare every year, so why not us? And I said to the mayor, I said, we began this uh, in 1987. And they said, you have a choice. You either, you know, make it happen next year that we go on our main thoroughfare or we will go and do it ourselves like we did in 1987. So now we are back on our main thoroughfare. And yes, it was a few years ago, years ago but we have to be vigilant because as Ozoma said, we have to call out those bureaucrats, those policymakers, because it creeps back in very subtly just with the violence we see in Canada, those conversations begin at the kitchen table with the parents standing, talking, listening, educating their children about their morals and their ethics and their phobias. And we see the result today in the violence, you know, against uh, people of color, the violence against uh, queer people, because it begins at that kitchen table. And that's where we have to reach, right, to educate people. We live in the society with a constitution. 
You know, my uncle went to fight in World War II, and he fought for freedom against fascism. And that's the freedom I live today, is in his memory. And that's why I walk up the street. I take my space uh, in this nation on the streets to show people, you can see me and I can see you. Thanks. Thank you, Albert. Uzoma? Um, so when I, when I think about, you know, biggest challenge or, or challenging moments, um, I, I really do reflect on my own personal journey mm -hmm. and, you know, what, what were pivotal moments for me. And, you know, that's, that's a long story and it's, it's still being written, right? It's still, it's still a work in progress. But I certainly think about how much lighter the work that I wanted to do became when I let go of what wasn't mine. And that's really hard. It's really hard to let go of what doesn't belong to us, to, to step out of the boxes that people build and put us in and tell us we're supposed to somehow fit inside of. It's, it's a challenge, but when I did that, and when I committed to only surrounding myself with people who respected that, people who embraced that, doing the work became so much lighter. It just, because there wasn't this nagging, persistent uh, thought in the back of my mind and on my heart that was, that was putting doubt in me, that was making me question who I was. It was just a burden that was lightened tremendously. And so, you know, working alongside and, and, you know, supporting people who are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, I think about the importance of lightening that load for them. You know, how can I, how can I contribute in a way that allows for people to do what they need to do, whatever that is for themselves, without carrying what doesn't belong to them. And so it's about identifying when messed up things are happening and naming it and calling it out for what it is and saying that you don't accept that I don't accept that you know it's about finding ways to not only navigate the world in a way that makes sense for me but supporting people in navigating the world in the ways that make sense for them and so you know and that takes it takes a commitment a daily recommitment and learning and unlearning. I talk about learning and unlearning a lot because I, it's true in terms of how we move forward and, and the things we have to let go of, right? Um, but that's an ongoing challenge. And those are ongoing moments. There are moments when I'm like, I don't want to do this today. Or, you know, there are moments where there's that little feeling in the, your stomach where it's like, this is going to be really uncomfortable. And and then you, you just push through, if it's, especially if it's, you know, for other folks, you push through because you want to lighten up for them. And ultimately, I wouldn't be here today if people didn't do that work before me. And so I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to make sure that people in the future, people down the road, people right now have it easier than I've had it, um, because ultimately we're all connected. So. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Uzoma. Cynthia. Yeah, it's, you would think in 2016, when I officially came out, 
that, you know, the 50 years before that the movement had begun and, you know, been working that allowed me to get to that point to deal with it. But yet I still in my own mind had to deal with the rationalization, the story that was based upon the heteronormative expectations that I knew of the way the world worked, that I went, I would have to be prepared to lose my birth family, to lose my marriage, to lose my kids, to lose my job, to lose my professional reputation, to lose all my friends, to lose my finances, and so on. And that some people go, oh, well, you were so brave. But as I put in the chat, being brave is simply not an absence of fear, but learning to move forward in spite of it. And for me, getting out of my own way and allowing my journey to move in spite of all of that was really the challenge that I faced. And then you blossomed into somebody very, very special. And I always say it too, <laughs> sorry, acceptance without understanding. Understanding. Yes. That's I was I was blessed with that message. So Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah. Robin. Well, damn it if they hadn't taken my shit. <laughs> so uh like self stigma, that internalized stuff about oh, I should try and fit in and I I remember that I actually went to the US and worked in a ski season because I also had people telling me stuff and I was like, so, like all my straight friends were like, you're straight, all my gay friends were like, you're not. And I was just like, my head's gonna come off. And um, I, I went and worked a, a ski season in the US and just went, this is, who I am and I, I had never done anything and I, I went back to Australia and I told my parents and my mum didn't talk to me for ages. My dad was super intelligent in the middle of a Chinese restaurant and said, all you need is a good poke and you'll be right. And I was just like, oh. Um, and, and so dealing with self-stigma, like the internal stuff, but, but also my family at the start were a challenge and, and they still are at times, right? Because, you know, when I finally let go of, I have to fit into the lesbian box, when I let go of that and like got to wear, do whatever I wanted and, and express this was like just life changing and you know, some of my family still struggle with that, like come home as long as you don't look like that or bring that weird stuff. And and so I think that the challenges are, are there and I think I, I, I take from Cynthia, like brave, I think I'm brave every day because I'll say stuff to my family, but I also made a commitment that I would never hide any of who I am. So, you know, I often wear colored ties, you know, ties, cause I love them and they're an expression of me. And 
whenever I go to train a group or I don't care who it is, I share who I am up front and I, I think what I want to do is model, yep, goosebumps, Woo! what I want to do is model how I hope the world will allow, not allow, will be so everyone can just be themselves in every moment. So even when there's challenges with, you know, running training, you never know what people's views are going to be. And I just put it out there. Here's the reason why I wear this tie or this suit. And like, you can have your own opinions, but this is me and I'm me. And what I've seen is people say thank you because when they see people just stand and be themselves, it allows them to step into a different space. So the, the challenges are ongoing, right? You know, they, they haven't gone away. They just sit there and sometimes they pop out and I'm like, yeah, I heard you now. Why don't you just sort off? Um, because I'm going to be me every moment of the day. And that puts me in places that I could get hurt and I'm going to do it anyway. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. And that is why you are Robin Priest, Live Your Truth, peer, mentor, supporter, everything, great listener. You put everything into perspective. Uh, thank you, all of you, for sharing your story. So now I'm going to go because Susie's joined us. Hi, Susie. And, well, somebody else has joined us with Rana. Hello there. Hi. Oh, so cute. Oh, and Linda. So the three, three of you ladies here. You've heard those compelling stories. Uh, how important or how do we put in perspective identity? How important is identity? Uh, Linda, you have teens, you know, getting into that adult years. Susie, you've got kids ranging to from little to getting into the teen years. Rana, you look at your beautiful, beautiful niece there. How important is identity? And it could be anything, cultural, gender, sexual identity. Susie. To me, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the identity that is important in what I instill in my children, but it's the ability to accept and love people for who they are mm -hmm. and who they tell you they are, no matter what. So just because you're not experiencing something, just because you feel that your gender matches your identity, you have to understand that not everybody has that same experience and that you must advocate and be compassionate and be accepting and celebrating of people who are living their truth. Um, I think that um, with everything that's happening Right now, I feel like everything is so heavy right now. You know, the news um, out of London, uh, everything that I see, even with Pride Month, um, you know, I'm so tired of hearing people say that, uh, you know, someone is embarrassing them or, uh, you know, they don't know how to deal with somebody's, you know, lived experience or truth or whatever. Like, I have zero understanding for that in the sense that. People who live in privilege, who understand, you know, that their heteronormative uh, life makes sense to them, have no idea 
what struggles other people who are trying to live their truth are going through. So to come out with, you know, like this, I'm thinking back to a video that I was watching on Facebook of an Australian couple watching their son get married uh, during uh, this Pride Month. And they were so, you know, like, oh, I hope it's not going to be a spectacle and this and that. And it's just like, would you be saying that to your daughter if she were getting married today? Would you be saying that to your son if you were marrying a woman today? Like the, the lack of understanding and acceptance and celebration of the people that we love blows my mind because that's not love then. That means that you have conditions upon that relationship. You have outdated ideas of what that needs to look like. And that's on you to fix. That is not on your children. That is not on anybody who is already struggling or dealing with living their truth in this supposedly black and white world that we live in that is a lot more gray and rainbow colored in between. That is not their job to fix you or to explain to you why it's okay. That's your job to battle years of conditioning and years of being told what's normal, what's acceptable. You know, like, I, I don't think that's appropriate. And especially as a parent, I can't imagine speaking that way to my child and saying, because you're having a gay marriage ceremony, and I hope one day we can just call it a marriage ceremony, I don't know whether to be happy for you or not. Like. It does not compute for me. And so I think that we really need to challenge ourselves and our way of thinking and say, why do we believe the things that we believe? Who told us to believe them? Who does it benefit when we believe these systems are in place? And if it's not benefiting the child that I'm raising, the child that I love, I really need to examine my adherence to these belief systems because maybe I've been wrong. We cannot raise another generation of children who feel unloved, who feel unaccepted, who feel they have to hide who they are from the people who brought them into this world. I have zero patience for that, zero. What I wanna do is raise children who understand that they are loved and celebrated just for being who they are every single day. I tell my children every day, even you know, or they're not perfect every day, but I say to them, even in those moments, I love you all day, every day. And that's true forever. And if you as a parent cannot say that to your child, you need to examine what's wrong in you because that's not about your child anymore. That's about what you lack in emotional growth, in maturity, and the understanding and capability to be compassionate as a person. Happy pride, y'all. That's what I have to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Ronnie, you get to follow that. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's always a tough follow. And, you know, 100% um, agree. I mean, Susie's always on point when it, and, you know, there's no disputing that. It's, it's completely, completely true. Um, I think the question was to do with, identity yes right like basically, yes mm -hmm. you know um and i'm just gonna take a different approach to it and i love you Susie, and definitely happy pride and I'm, I'm i'm missing the parade this year like i'm looking at old pictures from the past i'm like oh it's so it's 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 sad not because you know we all recognize that we can't be together like that um but it, it's just like when you go back and you look at all these pictures you're like wow it was such a it was such a moment to join people that you maybe wouldn't have seen all year. 
Like I remember just joining even as leader of the parade and we used to go and you just see like a billion people that you hadn't seen all year. So it was always like this amazing reunion. So I don't know, I hope we get to, to make it up somehow throughout the year. But um, yeah, but just going back to identity, I think that um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question uh, for many reasons. I think that those of us or those people um, and not, not us specifically, not me specifically, uh, but there are people uh, who have you know, and I wouldn't really call it identity, but they have lost pieces of who they are uh, throughout through colonization and whether it's in Canada or anywhere else in the world where, uh, you know, if you do, you know, and I'm not going to get into political stuff, but basically any, any, any other colonized place in this universe uh, where people have been made and been stripped of their, their languages or cultures or religions or whatever else. Uh, it becomes very clear that those are very crucial, critical, important parts of your being. Um, and you can only know that once you've lost it or you've seen or knowledge or you, you've seen or you've studied or you've watched or you've had first hand experience of people who have lost it. So um, I think that there's all sorts of identity. You know what? Yes, there's sexual gender identity. There's all sorts of stuff. I know we're talking about pride right now. There's a lot of really important, um, you know, identities surrounding that but i think that there's just it's a bigger it's a bigger process and it's a bigger issue and i think that um it's important uh like i i would i would never ever be a person who would argue that those things are not critically important and you could just look to the world where it was stripped of people and you can go right here in canada what 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 how, how devastating is it to lose your language, to lose your culture, to lose your existence and not be who you are in any capacity, uh, whether it's gender, sexuality, uh, religion, language, anything, whatever it is that you identify with, um, losing any part of it or being forcedly, forced to force forced out of it or being forced to have it stripped from you. Um, the same, it, it's traumatic, you know, so yeah, so I mean, bigger conversations for a bigger time but but i i just throughout history i think we should look at what has happened when these things have been ripped stripped for people mm -hmm. and how has that has how has that affect generations to come you know and mm -hmm. you know the sadly i think that we never want to look back at history you know uh it just seems that history continues to repeat itself in different forms and ways and i think that if we would just look throughout history we'd learn a lot of lessons about all of these issues right mm -hmm. uh and the big what not to do you know what i mean big what not to do right and um you know if you just look at uh, the indigenous community today you know like man like to be to be to be so strong in your language to have existed to still be speaking it right like imagine that imagine that imagine the strength and how powerful uh, you know, it, 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 it is within them to be able to still re revigorate it and lift it. And it's, it was never been gone, you know what I mean? Despite all the challenges and despite all the fight to eliminate it, uh, it's still, it's still, you know, it's still thriving and it still exists and it's still beautiful. Um, but that is because of individuals own, they took it upon themselves to fight, you know, nobody helped them with that. It was their own doing. So, uh, and you know, I, I, I keep teetering cause I want to, and I bet I still want to get super political, but I mean, there's other places in the world who are dealing with this right now as well. So, you know, simple Google search <laughs> will tell you all the nations across the world uh, that are being forced to be something that they're not. And I think essentially what we're talking about is 
um, what happens when you're forced to be something that you're not. So yeah, that's my two cents. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Rana. Linda, I don't know if... You know, I'm, I, I'm seeing the time and it's, it's uh, almost through. So um, I just... No worries. My, yeah. my take away is I wish for everyone to have a space like this, welcoming, safe, open, listening, heard, accepted, seen. Um, that is my wish. And I, I like how Albert said about, you know, the conversation starts at the kitchen table. And I, I like to, right now I'm seeing this as our kitchen table and we have the, um, I'm just grateful to be a part of this uh, this conversation because I think it for me gives me strength to go out and help others to speak up and and help uh, promote other people's stories and really um, uh, but I, I I get to come from a place of having been heard and having been seen and having that feeling of safety so that's something that I'm truly uh, thankful for and wish for everyone everyone else. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Linda. Albert, before we leave, you have been such a trailblazer and a leader. And I'm just curious, when we celebrate Pride in Winnipeg for those glorious beginnings of September this year, what do you hope for? What, what would be your biggest hope and wish in all of these years that you've been such an activist? Well, what I do is uh, I work with Ojibwe language specialists, and as Rana mentioned, the importance of, uh, you know, mother languages. And uh, there is a belief in the Ojibwe language about the creation of humans, and it predates colonization. And what the belief is, is the belief is that every child born has a role, a purpose, a destiny, and a divine gift. That is what the Indigenous people believe about creation of humans, that we all have that potential, uh, regardless of our gender identity or our sexuality. Indigenous people understood this tens of thousands of years ago, and that is something we want to share with the world. Our understanding of the relationship of the human to the natural world, the spiritual world, and there was no discrimination. And so we can build on that, right? That we all carry a divine gift. We are intentional, right? No matter what anybody says, we are intentional parts of creation. Thank you. Thank you, Albert, so much. So I want to thank all of you for joining in this conversation. Thank you so much, Uzoma. I know that you're very busy. And again, so I'm always having this one last thing. How are things going in your constituency, in the city? Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I hate to bring that word up, pandemic and vaccines and all that other stuff, but how is it going? You know, everyone's, everyone's navigating this pandemic the best ways that they can. And uh, I'm 
continually inspired and impressed by the ways uh, Manitobans have risen to this situation and show up for one another. And uh, it's, you know, as a politician now and in this role, I certainly have been very unimpressed uh, by some of the decision making that I think has, has left some folks without the resource and support they deserve. Uh, but, but my job is to highlight, you know, inequities and to push for us to close those gaps. That's my, that's my job and that's what I'm, I'm proud and uh, committed to doing. And I have to say, you know, I represent Union Station, which is in downtown Winnipeg, um, which looks markedly different now than it did pre-pandemic for, for a number of reasons. But uh, there's just a, there's a hopefulness with people that is amazing. There's, um, you know, I think a light now that people are looking at and can see and can feel because of vaccine distribution. Um, and I will give a little shout out to Knox United Church, which is at 400 Edmonton, right across Central Park. There is a vaccine clinic happening there on Thursday for folks ages 12 years old and up. Uh, very limited doses, but that clinic is going to be happening. I'm going to be working at that clinic, volunteering. Um, and we want to make sure that people who live in the Central Park area, the downtown community can get vaccinated in their own community, you know, leave their apartments, go across the street and, and get the vaccines that they need to access. So uh, I think that we're all kind of feeling a little bit fatigued for sure. But I, I know the more and more I talk with people, they're feeling hopeful because we do have vaccines and they are being distributed. Uh, and we just have to do a better job of getting them out to folks and making sure that people have what they need to stay safe and stay connected uh, in the midst of all of this. Oh. Well, thank you so much. And yes, great news. Thank you so much. Thank you all for joining in this conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, next week, Susie, maybe you could help me with this. I would like to have some restaurant owners come on, maybe even one do a little cooking demonstration to get us out of all of this, like, ugh. Because <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we can go on to patios. I don't know yet. But uh, so yeah, maybe we'll find that out very soon. So, yeah, yes. I can hook you up, Tracy. Okay. Love you. Tracy, can we give a shout out to all the nurses? Yes. I believe that they're going through negotiations oh, or something's happening and they're going to be striking. And can we also just clarify, because I, it's taking a lot of energy out of me not to literally respond to every ridiculous comment there is out there about how nurses are like, you know, leaving the community high and dry. Listen, it's a rotation. The services are not affected by them standing up for their rights. Let's just make that clear. Let's just make that clear. Okay. Services are not affected. They are still doing the best they've been doing all throughout this pandemic. So let's just clarify that and shout out to them. And I hope that they get everything that they deserve and mm -hmm. uh, the community deserve, should be standing side by side with them because who, where would we be without them? Seriously. Oh, so most definitely. Okay. Thank you, Rana. All right, everybody go and enjoy your beautiful Tuesday. Good night, Cynthia. <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.
Thanks for listening. This has been a production of iLikeQ.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Do, did, Will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.